This morning, we continue a sermon series that we are calling Exemplars of Faith, Followers of Jesus Through the Ages. Exemplars of Faith, Followers of Jesus Through the Ages. The idea of this series is to share the stories of exemplary followers of Jesus over the course of history as illustrations of what discipleship can look like. Previously, we've learned about Francis of Assisi. We've learned about uh, Patrick of Ireland. We've learned about Evelyn Underhill and others. Next week, next Sunday, we'll learn about Clarence Jordan, a southerner who in the middle of the 20th century resisted racism by starting uh, an interracial Christian community in Georgia. Fascinating story that we will indwell some next Sunday. Today's exemplary disciples are Andre and Magda Trochme. They were married. Andre was uh, a pastor, Magda his wife, and the villagers of Le Chambon. Out of curiosity, how many of you have heard this story, the story of uh, the village of Le Chambon? Pam has. Pam, you might be the only one. So at the very least... Uh, Today's message will not be redundant for you. Excellent. Andre and Magda uh, Trachmi and the uh, other villagers of Le Chambon, they were Huguenots, which is a variety of Presbyterian. They were Reformed in their theology and Presbyterian in their government. And during World War II, uh, these villagers, the village is located in the mountains of southern France, during World War II, uh, they hid at the risk of their own lives thousands of Jewish refugees from the Nazis. More on that later. As I reflected on this uh, village's story, I was reminded of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. And I'll be walking us through this passage, and then I'll share more of Le Chambon's story as an illustration, a lived example of what discipleship might look like. The passage starts on page 161 of the New Testament in the Pew Bibles. 161, if you'd like to read along. Christian ethicist Lee Camp calls Romans 12 an ethic for the church, and Romans 13 an ethic for the state. Sadly, Romans 13 has been misused at various times over the course of history. Victor Paul Furnish, a New Testament scholar, writes, Some Christians in Hitler's Germany appealed to Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, as the decisive biblical warrant for obedience to the Nazi regime. They quoted Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, to justify their support of the Nazi regime. Thankfully, the villagers of Le Chambon did not interpret Romans 13 in that fashion. They refuse to read Romans 13 apart from Romans 12. And here is Romans 12, beginning with verse 1. I, Paul, appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is 
your spiritual, keyword number one, worship, keyword number two. These last two words are often interpreted in reductionistic fashion. The first word, spiritual, is the Greek word logikain, from which we derive our English word logical. It can also be translated reasonable. So spiritual, logical, reasonable, uh, these things have a lot in common to the first century mind. In our scientific age, we tend to separate and compartmentalize the spiritual and the rational. That's our temptation. In the pre-scientific first century, the spiritual was considered rational, and the rational was considered spiritual. We might do well uh, to question whether uh, when we hear spiritual mumbo-jumbo that strikes us as completely irrational, we might do well to question whether that's really spiritual. And we might do well to question uh, logical arguments that have no room for anything spiritual. We might do well to question whether those logical arguments uh, are really all that logical. The second key word is worship, and this word too uh, is sometimes reduced in its meaning. Mark Laberton, formerly of uh, First Presbyterian Berkeley and now a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, writes, Comprehensive worship redefines all we call ordinary. Worship can name a Sunday gathering of God's people, like this gathering right now. But it also includes how we treat those around us, how we spend our money, and how we care for the lost and the oppressed. Worship can encompass every dimension of our lives. An illustration of how ordinary day-to-day activities can be worshipful. A couple weeks ago, uh, I found myself on a remote tropical island in the South Pacific. It was really rough. It was just like the television show Survivor. I barely got off the island alive, like Robinson Crusoe, as primitive as can be. The island's name was Bora Bora. Have you been to Bora Bora? Uh, uh-huh. So, uh, Bora Bora is not a rough place to be. And now some of you are thinking, uh, Pastor Josh went to Bora Bora. We must be paying him way too much. <laughs> so please know it was a gift. This trip uh, was a gift. One of my favorite parts of this wonderful trip was getting off the resort and uh, traveling across this lagoon with these beautiful turquoise waters to the main island that you see there with the uh, striking mountain. And we took a jeep tour that was uh, led by uh, native Tahitians, native Bora Borans. Our jeep guide, uh, he explained to us that uh, the people of Bora Bora are quite spiritual. He said they are 60% Protestant, 20% Roman Catholic, and 20% cannibal. (laughs) He was having fun with us, of course. He drove us maybe halfway, three-quarters of the way up that mountain that you see there, and, uh, and stopped at a place where there was one of the most marvelous views I have ever seen, looking down on this lagoon that you see in the foreground uh, with these uh, impossibly blue uh, waters and this reef uh, surrounding the island. A majestic view. And then while we were taking in this site, 
uh, he plucked fruit from the trees all around us, papaya and grapefruit and breadfruit, and uh, laid out some palm fronds on the hood of the jeep, uh, cut up the fruit with great skill, great dexterity, and uh, by the time he was done, we had this work of art on the hood of this jeep of fresh fruit for us to uh, look at and then enjoy eating. Two ordinary practices, right? Taking in a view and uh, eating fresh fruit. Marveling at the beauty of God's creation and enjoying God's provision. Those two acts are acts of worship, just as what we are doing right here, right now, is an act of worship. Two ordinary practices that can be worshipful. Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Part of what Paul is doing here is simply affirming the life of the mind, affirming uh, education, if you will. But he's also restating earlier calls to repent. You see, the word repent, the Greek word repent, is metanoia. Meta, metamorphosis, change. Noia, gnosis, knowledge. Repent simply means to change your mind. So here Paul is uh, calling followers of Jesus to repent or change their mind using slightly different language. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. It's a call to uh, rethink things, to rethink the status quo and become nonconformists. Verse 3, for by, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. And now he's going to uh, list some spiritual gifts. It's not an exhaustive list, so if you uh, don't hear any gifts that you think you have, don't panic. This is not an exhaustive list. It begins with prophecy or truth-telling in proportion to faith, ministry or service in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter or encourager in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. Paul continues, Let love, the word here is agape, which means self-giving, let self-giving be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love, and here he changes the word. Here the word is Philadelphia, which you'll recognize, brotherly love. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. 
contribute to the needs of people inside the church, the saints, that word refers to all Christians, that's pastoral care, and extend hospitality to strangers, to people outside the church. The Greek word that's translated hospitality, philo-xenion. Philo, love, xenion, strangers. Hospitality is love of strangers. You've probably heard the word xenophobia, fear of the other. Hospitality is exactly the opposite. Our temptation is to fear the other, to fear the person or persons who are different from us. Paul is calling us not to fear them, but to love them. It's easy for me to love someone who is like me. It's easy for me to uh, love someone who uh, thinks like I do, who agrees with me, who knows that I am right. (laughs) It's much more difficult to love the other, to love people who are different from us, whether uh, racially, uh, whether they have a different nationality, uh, whether their politics are different, and the list goes on. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Uh, This is the second time here that Paul has affirmed humility in this passage. And then verses 17 through 21, we hear an echo of the ethical instruction of Jesus that we find in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel and the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's Gospel. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. Theologian Walter Wink summarizes Paul's Jesus-y ethical instruction like this. Do not counter evil in kind. Do not let evil dictate the terms of your opposition. Do not let violence lead you to mirror your opponent. Wink hears both Jesus and Paul attempting to break the tit-for-tat cycle of retaliation that's so common in our world. We could no doubt name numerous illustrations of this uh, tit-for-tat cycle uh, of retaliation. Just one comes to mind, uh, the ongoing conflict in the Middle East that's been going on for decades. Uh, One side does evil to the other, the evil side responds in kind, and it goes back and forth without end. We could argue that American politics today uh, involves a tit-for-tat, a cycle of retaliation, albeit without violence. Verse 18. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. This last line is metaphorical language for um, shaming uh, an enemy in the hope 
that they will change, in the hope that they will be transformed. And finally, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The story of the nonconformists of Le Chambon serves as an example of overcoming evil with good. The story is told uh, in the book Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed, the story of the village of Le Chambon and how goodness happened there, written by Philip Halley. Halley's uh, story is itself fascinating. He was an American Jew who served in the U.S. Army during World War II, and he saw quite a bit of combat on the ground in Europe. After the war, he learned of the village of Le Chambon and what they had uh, done, and uh, he became a philosopher, and he eventually wrote a book about uh, these villagers. Without regretting what he had done during World War II, he believed what he had done uh, was a necessary evil, he came to uh, admire and be inspired by the story of Le Chambon. The story includes Andre and Magda uh, Trocme. They were leaders in this village. Andre was a pastor. Uh, Magda was his, uh, his wife. And there were about 3,000 villagers. Over the course of four years, the Nazis occupied France for four years, this village uh, hid, at the risk of their own lives, an estimated 5,000 Jewish refugees, most of them children. One story in particular, as I was reading, Lest Innocent uh, Blood Be Shed, has stuck with me, and I think it serves as uh, a summary of what this, uh, this little village uh, did. One day, the Vichy police, who were French police, who were puppets of the uh, Nazi occupiers, um, they were working uh, with the Nazis, they swept the village. They came into the village with two empty buses because they had heard rumors that the villagers there were hiding Jewish refugees. Andre Trochmi greeted them. They demanded that he turn over the Jews that he was hiding. He flatly refused. They then searched the village, and miraculously, they were only able to find one Jewish person. This man was uh, loaded into a bus, and as uh, the buses uh, were started up and they were about to leave, uh, Trochme's son, 13-year-old boy, walked up to the bus and handed this Jewish man a chocolate bar through the window in full view of the Vichy police. Were you his father, were you Andre Trochmi, how would that act have made you feel? I think I would have had mixed emotions. I think I would have been joyful that my son, whom I was raising in the faith, took Jesus' instruction to love our neighbors so seriously. I think I also would have been fearful for his life. What might uh, the Vichy police do uh, to my son as they watch him uh, hand this chocolate bar to this Jewish refugee? Turns out the Vichy police didn't do anything to Trochme's son, perhaps because the other villagers, inspired by his example, went to that bus window one by one 
and handed this Jewish man clothing and food. Just one story of many in this book that I highly recommend, uh, Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed. A few years after writing the book, Hallie was lecturing on the village and, uh, and what they had done to resist uh, the Nazis and to love their neighbors. And at the end of his lecture, he asked the audience if there were any questions. A woman in the audience stood up and said, the Holocaust, or excuse me, I got ahead of myself. Uh, she stood up and she said, the village that you've just described, it saved all three of my children. And then she said, the Holocaust was storm, lightning, thunder, wind, rain, yes. And Le Chambon was the rainbow. For whom will we be a rainbow?